0: This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Today our scripture comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29. It can be found on page 812 in the black Bible that's in front of you in your pews. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority And not as their
1: scribes. Thanks, Whitney. Good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Andrew. I am the other bald pastor in this congregation. I'm really happy to be with you here this morning. Kids, welcome. Fifth Sundays, we do family worship, so we give our volunteers a break. So if the room is extra lively and energetic today, that's a really good thing. Uh, So we are glad that you're here. Jesus actually says that we have a lot kids to learn from your faith. So thanks for being with us here today. Thank you, Maggie. I appreciate that. Uh, Hey, let's pray. And then we are going to finish the Sermon on the Mount today. So will you bow your heads and pray with me? Uh, God, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your presence with us. Uh, will, Will you please give us ears to hear? Uh, And as Jesus talks about in this passage, you aren't just looking for hearers, you're looking for hearers and doers, those who will see who you are, listen to what you have to say, uh, and then follow after you. And and God, uh, we need grace to do that. We need your spirit, we need your strength to do that. So I ask that you would give us all those things. Will you give us all that we need to live as your people, to live as your hands and feet? Um, God, we love you, and uh, we know that our love and our faithfulness like, is nothing in comparison to the love and the faithfulness and the grace that you have. Um, so will you give us more? I pray all of this in your name. Amen. All right, so I first started reading the Bible in high school. I grew up in church, uh, but I, I didn't really pay much attention uh, to reading the Bible, figuring out what it was that I believed for myself until somewhere in high school when I started uh, reading it. And as I read it and started to become more familiar with it, I learned that I liked Paul. I liked the epistles. They kind of made sense to me. It seemed logical. The Old Testament was really interesting. There were a lot of good stories in it. What surprised me was I didn't like Jesus very much when I read the Gospels. Uh, which like I was like that's I mean I'm supposed to like Jesus so what's what's going on the the problem that I had was Jesus so often comes off as confrontational he's trickly he says really really difficult things and he's always directing attention back to himself always asking really difficult questions and I I struggled with it I had a really hard time with it maybe you can relate maybe you think that I'm crazy and you love Jesus and everything about him that's amazing you should um what you can't get away from is the fact that in the Gospels, when you read the words of Jesus, Jesus intends for you to take him really seriously. When he speaks, he speaks with the expectation that what he is saying is true, that what he is saying is authoritative, and if you hear his words, there is a response that is expected of Of you. And this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount kind of has all of those ingredients. Jesus has just spent three chapters laying out his kingdom agenda and calling anyone who will hear, which includes us, to a kind of higher righteousness, to a faithfulness to the kingdom of God. He's pointed to the supremacy of God in everything. He's called us to live our lives before his eyes alone, to structure every single aspect of our lives, spiritual, financial, relational, emotional, around what God values and around what God calls good. And as he does this, Jesus makes really beautiful promises, right? The Beatitudes are beautiful. The Beatitudes is Jesus throwing open the doors to the kingdom of God, to people who thought that they didn't have a place inside of it. And that's beautiful. Jesus goes through and talks about the care and loving provision of a Father who is in heaven, who sees your needs and will, of course, meet them. That is good. That is beautiful. And so, as you come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, you, you might expect Jesus to kind of offer a warm hug and be like, All right, guys, that sounds amazing, right? All right, let's bring it in. Kingdom of God on three one, two, three, break. He doesn't do that. Instead, he gets really prickly and he gives really strong warnings about the importance of not just listening to what he has to say, but actually responding to it, actually doing what he says. He will not let us walk away with general feelings of warmth and fuzziness. Instead, he gives Three warnings that all have one big idea. Three warnings with one big idea. The big idea is that simple faithfulness is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. Simple faithfulness, responding to the words of Jesus, acting on, building your life on the words of Jesus day in, day out, is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. So that's the big idea. And then the three warnings that he gives to illustrate this are, number one, be careful which path that you choose. Be careful which path you choose. The second is watch out for anyone or anything that will pull you away from simple faithfulness to Jesus. Watch out for anyone or anything that will pull you away from simple faithfulness to Jesus. And the third is be careful not just to admire Jesus, do what he says. Be careful not to just admire Jesus, do what he says. And and in all three of those warnings, Jesus is forcing us to answer a question. Now that you have heard, what are you gonna do with Jesus? Now that you've heard, what are you gonna do with Jesus? That is the only question that matters right now. And throughout that, you might've heard when Whitney was reading, uh, he talks about the many. A lot of times he talks about, hey, a lot, many miss this. A lot of people miss this. What he's not trying to do is give some kind of statistical breakdown of how many people are Christians and how many aren't. What he's doing is saying, hey, if many miss it, what are you gonna do? What about you? He is always pointing the finger back at you and saying, hey, what are you gonna do with me? Will you listen, will you do, or will you just go on your way? So all we're going to do today um, is try to wrestle with Jesus, listen to his warnings, um, and see what he has for us. So uh, if you look down at your Bibles, uh, this first warning that Jesus gives is found in the first two verses of our passage, and it has to do with two paths. Look at verse 13. Jesus begins his conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount this way. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus is not a good salesman. As he's been going through the Sermon on the Mount, if the Sermon on the Mount is kind of um, him laying forward, this is what's most valuable, if he's calling people to life inside of his kingdom, um, you would expect for him to kind of end by emphasizing all the goodness, all the benefits. What, he, he doesn't do that. He says, hey, if you do this, this is hard. This is a difficult path that I am inviting you to walk. And his warning has two parts the first part has to do with the entry the second part has to do with the way you see the entry in verse 13 when he says enter by the narrow way which what 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 does what does that mean Jesus is ultimately talking about a decision that you have to make is Jesus actually Lord when he actually says these things do you have to take him seriously or do you not Do his words have authority or do they not? And in other teachings, when Jesus uh, talks about the gate or the door, he makes it really clear that he is talking about himself. So the gate is narrow because there is only way to go through it by confessing and actually saying, oh, yeah, he actually is Lord. He actually does possess authority. His words actually are weighty. They have significance. I can't just bypass them. It's a narrow way of confession and embracing the lordship of Jesus. And in contrast, Jesus says there is another way, there is a way that is wide and it's easy. And it's the path of curating your own decisions and believing that your own voice is the most significant, weighty, authoritative voice in the world. And it's the way that we're all born into, right? That's the natural inclination of our hearts. And Jesus says, hey, that way is wide and you can make it look like whatever you want to make it look like. The problem is, it leads to destruction, Jesus says. And that makes sense because if Jesus actually is who he says he is, if he actually does possess authority, if he actually does possess life, then moving away from the source of life can't have any other end but destruction. And so Jesus says, hey, be careful about the path that you choose. Where are you going? Where are you walking? Are you following the one who is life, who offers life, or are you going your own way, which might feel smooth, which might feel less demanding, but ultimately has nothing to offer except for loss and destruction? And when Jesus says that the path that he's telling you to choose is difficult, uh, we don't need to guess at what he means by what is difficult, because he spent the entire Sermon on the Mount telling us that already, right? When Jesus talks about the difficulty of this path that he's laying out, it looks like embracing poverty of spirit. It looks like repenting every single day of the anger, the lust, the self-centeredness that's inside of our hearts. The difficulty looks like loving our enemies, It looks like forgiving those who have wronged or hurt us. It looks like being wildly generous with our money by giving it away. It looks like practicing your righteousness with an expectation that no one else is going to see or care other than God. And that that is a good thing. And Jesus says, hey, all of that is hard work. That's a difficult path. But... The destination is life instead of destruction. And not many people find it, he says. It's easy to miss. It's easy to get off track, which, which, which means if what Jesus says is true, that there are going to be times that living according to the values and the ways of Jesus put you at odds with other people around you maybe even with people that you love and really deeply respect. Frederick Bruner, who is a New Testament author and scholar, in um, talking about these verses says that to be a disciple, to, to do what Jesus is asking you to do in these verses, is to put yourself in a moral minority. Everybody does it is not a helpful criterion for Christian ethics, and so if you're a Christian, if you, if you are one who has claimed the name of Jesus, that you, you think, hey, I have gone through this uh, narrow path, I'm trying to walk on this road, Jesus does not uh, give this warning to uh, make you feel good about yourself that you got it when everyone else misses it. What, what, what he's doing is pointing you back to your need for grace every single day. Say, so, hey, this is a rough journey. This is a difficult road, and you need the sustaining grace of Jesus to walk with you on the way. So Jesus wants you to hear this, to remember who you are, to remember the path that you're on, and say, God, I, I need you every single day. That's why Jesus taught us to pray for God to provide for us every single day in the Lord's Prayer, which is awesome, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He's given us all the tools that we already need in this sermon. He said, God, give us every day our daily bread. Will you help us to forgive our enemies? Will you forgive us our debts? That's what walking on the way looks like. And if you're not a Christian, Jesus is not going to let you get away with just admiring him. He's not going to let you get away with just saying, man, Sermon on the Mount, it's amazing, would the world be better if we all loved our enemies? He's, he's, he's going to bring you, he's going to confront you. He's going to bring you to a point of decision and say, like, are, are you not just going to hear my words and say, that sounds nice? Are you going to look at me and say, oh, no, he, you actually are the one who's in control of everything. You're like, I, I serve you, I'm not above you. Jesus is bringing you to a decision point in these verses. Which path are you going to choose? Choose the path that leads to life. And so in these verses, if Jesus is focused on the many, if he's talking about kind of the general big picture decision that every single person in the world uh, who hears the words of Jesus needs to make, uh, in, these, in the next warning that he gives, he starts to narrow in the warnings uh, to people who have gone through the narrow path, uh, uh, door who are trying to walk the difficult path. And he gives a warning to them uh, and says, hey, as you are on that path, be careful of anyone or anything who will pull you away from simple, that word is really important, simple faithfulness to Jesus. And he illustrates this morning by giving us a picture of two different prophets uh, that we see in verses 15 through 23. I'm not gonna read the entire uh, thing again. He starts by talking about false prophets who come dressed in sheep's clothing, but inside are wolves. He gives a picture of how you'll be able to recognize them. And then the second image, the second prophet, is one who stands before God on the last day and says, well, but God, didn't I prophesy, didn't I do great things in your name? Some people split those two into two different sections, but, but I think Jesus's point is the same in both of those stories. It's to watch out. Watch out for anyone, even people inside the church who look really authentic and really impressive, watch out for anyone who will draw you away from simple devotion to Jesus. And so this first image Jesus gives is what he calls a false prophet. These people look like Christians. They might look like amazing Christians, um, but they want to tear people apart just like a wolf wants to devour the sheep. Jesus lived in a day where there were a lot of um, sheep herds around. And so shepherds would have to protect the flock from wolves who came in. And he's giving a kind of ridiculous picture. He's like, hey, imagine if the threat wasn't just so obvious as a wolf coming out there. Imagine if the wolf actually looked like a sheep and was actually in the middle of the flock. That's dangerous. You need to learn how to recognize it. And Jesus gives tests. And I think the reason that he does this is because the entire time in the Sermon on the Mount is he's been warning about groups of people who are doing just this. Think of the most of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is comparing and contrasting his way, his kingdom, with the way of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees put on an amazing religious show. They did so many of the things that God commanded, but Jesus says the problem is their hearts are really, really far from God. And if you follow them, it ends in destruction. So Jesus gives a test for you to be able to distinguish, hey, what, what are we talking about? Like, how do, how do I recognize that? If, they, if it looks like a sheep, but it's not a sheep, how do I know? Well, Jesus says, well, you'll know them by their fruit, which is using a picture to illustrate a picture, which isn't super helpful, but Jesus does that a lot. Um, What what does that mean? Jesus is explaining that you can't get grapes from thorns, you can't get figs from thistles, you cannot get hamburgers from Chick-fil-A, because eventually, the identity of a thing, the nature of a thing, reveals itself. Maybe not immediately, but over time, what is inside of something manifests itself on the outside. So there were plants in Israel uh, that looked really, really similar to fruit-bearing plants. And the only way that you could tell them apart was by getting up really close by and, and seeing when they're in season what kind of fruit they are producing. So just like plants produce fruit, lives and teachings produce track records. It, and what's hard about this is Jesus is not um, saying this so that we can go around and just like be suspicious of everyone sitting in the pews next to us. What, what he is doing is calling us back again over and over and over again. Hey, like what kind of fruit am I producing? What kind of fruit is being produced Here. Like, and how do we make sure that good fruit is being produced everywhere around us? It's, 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 he's, he's aiming it first at us before we're going around saying, well, I don't think that you're really doing this, so you must be a wolf. That's, that's, that's not how it works. But historically, there are two things that the church has evaluated when trying to figure out if it's good fruit or bad fruit. The first is a doctrinal test. What kind of teaching does this person hold to or promote? Do they speak about Jesus? Are they quick to point to Jesus, the necessity of faith, the hope of resurrection, the centrality of the cross, the forgiveness of sins that is only found in Christ? Do they speak the comfort of Jesus? Do they speak the hard sayings of Jesus? Is, are, are they pointing in whatever they're doing back to Jesus? Or does Jesus kind of fade into the background and maybe play a little bit of a role, but there are other things that are more interesting or more important? That's a sign. Pay attention to that. The second test that normally uh, the churches use is the personal test. So if there's a teaching test and there is the personal test, does this person walk the difficult road that Jesus is talking about? Is their life marked by faith, repentance, hope, love, or are they self-serving and self-seeking? So pay attention, Jesus says. Do not let anyone draw you away from simple devotion to him. And then he drives this point home really hard in uh, verses 21 through 23, when Jesus talks about this second kind of prophet. Is if the first prophet is a false prophet, comes in sheep's clothing, this second prophet is... Uh, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Just, just listen, listen to this. So Jesus sets the scene. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, which is probably the day of judgment when everyone stands before God, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I'll declare to them, I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness so this is weird you you have people standing before god and apparently really confused about why god is not welcoming them into their kingdom they're, they're saying the right things, right? They're saying, God, Lord, Lord, we're, we're acknowledging that you, you are Lord. And then they can even point to a really long track record and resume of all the amazing spiritual things that they've done in their lives. Like God, God, didn't we prophesy? Didn't, didn't we speak for you? Didn't we cast out demons? didn't we do these amazing things? And then like the, the, the last part I, I like, um, and didn't we do many mighty works in your name? There are just like so many things that we've done that we can't name all of them. We did that all for you. And somehow God says, no, well, hey, I, I do not know you. So what's going on here? The problem is that this person, this prophet has been so fixated on on the flashy and the spectacular and the great, that they've missed the whole point of what Jesus has been teaching through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Because, like, did, Jesus did not say a thing about any of those things that they're bringing up in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. They, these people have been focused on achieving the spectacular practicing their righteousness before men instead of before God. And they, in doing that, haven't actually done a single thing that Jesus actually asked them to do. Maybe because it felt too small or too insignificant or not great or important enough. But As Frederick Bruner says again, I almost just thought about reading all of Frederick Bruner's book because it was great. I have no other quotes or illustrations from anyone else except for him today. Bruner says, in the sermon, the fruits Jesus commands are less sensational and more simple. Revering scripture's commandments, casting out one's anger the miracles of sexual purity and fidelity, the careful speech that does not misuse God's name, the heart that extends itself even to persecutors and enemies. That's what Jesus loves. And that is what is great in his eyes. And that's what he's been saying all throughout this entire sermon. Greatness in the kingdom of God looks less like flashy in front spectacle and more like quiet day in, day out faithfulness that maybe nobody ever notices. Turn to to Matthew 25 really quick. Uh, It's on page 831 in my Bible. It's probably on page 831 in the uh, pew Bible in front of you. Matthew 25, Jesus tells a really similar story to what we find here in Matthew uh, chapter seven, but he goes into a lot more detail. Um, And it's, again, a picture of this final judgment scene. The son of man is coming in his glory. He's fully established the kingdom. All the nations, all the world are gathered before him and given account to him. And then Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world why for I was hungry and you gave me food I was thirsty and you gave me drink I was a stranger and you welcomed me I was naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me I was in prison and you came to me then the righteous will answer him saying when did that happen Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Do you see the difference between those two responses? One of them comes before God very impressed with themselves with their resume, with all of the great public things that they've accomplished that everyone can see. And the other one has no idea that they even did it because they were simply day in, day out doing the small, quiet things that Jesus has commanded us to do throughout this sermon. And that... Jesus says, is what is great in his eyes. That is what is great before the eyes of God, which means moms who feel overwhelmed when their kids are out of control every single day and no one else sees you. Faithfulness and love to your children is great in the kingdom of God. That means for single people in the room who are stewarding your singleness in a lot of different ways, maybe with disappointment, maybe it doesn't mean that much. Faithfulness to Jesus is greatness in the kingdom of God. It means for dads, patience and humility is great in the kingdom of God. It's the things that don't get a lot of attention, but actually sustained over time change Everything. That's what Jesus is asking for. And he is saying, do not let anyone distract you from that simple faithfulness. Make that your aim, make that your goal, make that your ambition every single day. And when you stand before the Father, he'll say, hey, well done, enter into my kingdom. So there are two paths. Be careful about which path you choose. There are two kinds of prophets who have a form of holiness, but miss the point. Don't let anyone distract you from a simple faithfulness and uh, fidelity to Jesus. They fixated on Jesus. And finally, uh, Jesus brings us to the, uh, the conclusion of his sermon in the story of the two houses built on the two foundations. Uh, I'll go ahead and read it again verses 24 through 27 So Jesus, again, narrows the focus. He's been talking about the general decision that everyone needs to make. He's been talking about the dangers that exist within the community of faith, within the people of God. And then finally, he's gonna end by pointing to the dangers that exist inside of your own heart and your own soul. And the danger is to just listen to what Jesus has to say and then not actually do anything with it, to simply go about your way. And Jesus is not looking for listeners alone. He's looking for people who will listen, who will hear, and then will obey. He's looking for hearers and doers. And in all these warnings, Jesus wants us to examine ourselves. How will I respond to him? What am I going to do with this? The danger is that we'll hear the words of Jesus and then go on our way unchanged. We won't do anything with it. We'll think it's worth considering, um, but life is really busy and the world is really different now than it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke it. It's not really practical But Jesus says that a response of mere admiration or interest is building on a foundation of sand that cannot stand when winds blow. I'm reading a book right now about the 1900 uh, hurricane in Galveston, Texas. Um, I didn't know much about this. I just randomly picked it up from the library. In the late 1800s, Galveston was in competition with Houston to see which city would become the kind of premier city uh, on the coast in Texas. So massive competition between them. They're trying to build up, attract business, attract uh, shipping, trade, all of this. And Galveston is located in a really interesting point. It's like a small sandy island that is right at sea level, Um, and people just assumed that it would be, that would be okay. They had advanced well enough to be able to withstand any storms, and in what, you know, this unique area in the Gulf, there's like no storm that could come through here and do anything uh, to harm us. So they focused on building up uh, trade, they focused on building up business, and built no precautions against actual storms or hurricanes. No seawalls, no... um, real structuring of buildings to withstand floods or winds. And September 1st, 1900, one of the biggest hurricanes to hit the coast went right over Galveston and literally leveled the entire thing. Like it, it all fell down and it completely altered the course of that city. Like now we think about Galveston as the place that we go to. uh, I don't know if we think about Galveston. um, It's the place where you can go to the beach in Texas or something. It's not the big city like, like Houston. Jesus is pointing to a similar kind of principle here. We can get so distracted with so many other things that might actually be good and important in our lives. And so we build and we build and we say, yeah, sure, maybe those things are important, but it's really not that serious or we'll be okay. We can have strength to stand. And Jesus says, listen, if you are building on any other foundation other than faith and obedience, you won't be able to stand because when the storms come, they're actually a lot more powerful than we could ever expect. And so Jesus says, hey, build on the rock. Plant your roots and foundation here on the rock. Because a life built on listening to the words of Jesus, hearing the words of Jesus, and then doing, he says over and over and over again, doing the words of Jesus actually is stable and actually is secure. So Jesus ends this sermon by, he just stops talking, says, great was the fall of it. Then he stops talking, gets up, walks down the mountain. The crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And he does that to, again, leave us with questions. Are we just going to be hearers, content to listen and go on our way? Or will we take seriously what he has to say and orient by his grace everything in our lives around following him? What are you gonna do with Jesus? How are you going to respond? Will you listen, nod, go along like nothing else happened? Or will you by faith grab a hold of him? Why should you grab a hold of him? The reality is that none of us are going to be able to do all of this, right? Uh, We are pretty hopeless. The next time that someone harms you, it's going to be really, really difficult for you to forgive them. And you might not. But as Jesus goes throughout the rest of the book in Matthew, he demonstrates that he's actually the one who does everything that he talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. He is faithful to the commands of God, even to the point of death. He sets aside his own privilege. He sets aside his own power for the sake of others. He embraces poverty of spirit. He lives his life before God alone, regardless of the cost. He goes around healing the sick. He conquers death through the cross. And then he raises again to newness of life after three days, founding and establishing this kingdom. And it's the kingdom that he's already thrown the doors open to. So he's saying, hey, come in. Grab a hold of me before you do anything else. Don't perform your way into the kingdom. That's not what Jesus has been saying throughout this entire time. He's saying, look, I've done all the work. I can heal sick bones. I can heal sick hearts. I can make you new. So come in to my kingdom and then live like it's actually true. And so we come here uh, every single week to hear his words, to be hearers, to learn how we can live as his disciples in the, word, in the world. And then we come to the table every single week as a sign that we actually are on the path following Jesus. I th- th- think about that. We, we, we all, when we uh, do that awkward little shuffle, coming to communion and you know, saying, no, you go first, you go first, and trying to climb over other people, um, it's all symbolizing that we are headed on the road of the cross, that we're headed to the cross, that Jesus is our one hope, that his broken body, his shed blood of a new covenant actually changes everything, that he has all the grace that we need to follow him in this life. And so if you believe that, you're a Christian. I wanna invite you to come and take communion with us. Communion is open to all of those who claim the name of Jesus uh, here At Redeemer, Uh, If you are not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here with us. We have uh, prayers in the back of our pews that I'd just invite you to spend the next few minutes as the rest of us come to the table, spend some time praying uh, to God, asking him to reveal himself. If you are in need of prayer, uh, we have prayer ministers who will be right over here underneath the stained glass windows uh, who would love to pray for you for anything that you have going on inside of your life. Uh, So the rest of the service, we will come to the table. Uh, We will pray with and for each other, and then we'll worship a little bit more. The way we do communion here at Redeemer, we will have three stations down here in the front. Two of them will be bread, wine, juice. The wine is in the stone, the juice is in the glass, and then we will have a gluten-free single-serve station over here to uh, your right. We'll also have a station up there in the balcony with uh, bread, wine, and juice. You'll just come forward uh, and tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, uh, and then go on your way back to your seats, so let's uh, let's pray. Let me pray for all of us, and then we'll come to the table, uh, commune with Jesus, and uh, worship God a little bit more. So, Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for um, revealing yourself to us. Thank you that you are a solid rock, that you are um, the door to life, that you have life, that you actually can back up what you say. Um, so, so I pray Uh, Even right now, will will you strengthen our faith? Um, Because God, we need you. Like, there's there's a lot going on uh, inside of our lives, and um, like I know, life is really hard for some people in this room right now, and we really need your grace. We need your presence, and so I I pray that as we come to your table, um, you would meet us. Will you heal hearts? Will you even heal bodies? And will you give us all the grace that we need to live as your disciples? God, fill us with your spirit. Will you, will you help us to grasp, grab, grab hold of, comprehend um, the love that you have for us? Thank you for loving us enough to say difficult things, to confront us, Will you give us hearts that can hear you and follow you? I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Come when you're ready.